I also caught a conviction, I guess, as collateral damage um, from the whole situation. So now I'm in this situation where I'm about to give birth. My husband is in prison. I have a criminal record. Like, what the hell? Like, this is literally not the plan. Hello, hello, I'm Tunde and welcome to How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. Now, before we kick off today, please remember to share the podcast with your friends or family or work colleagues. The more people are aware of the podcast, the more listeners we get with the podcast, the more eyeballs we get as well, the bigger we get and we can take it from there. Talking of great guests, today we have on the show Jendela Benson. Jendela is a British-Nigerian author and editor. Her debut novel, Hope and Glory, was published in April 2022. She is also head of editorial at Black Ballard, the award-winning digital magazine and membership community for black women in Britain and beyond. She's also written for The Sunday Times, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph, and most recently, the Guardian. Originally from Birmingham, she's now based in London and currently working on her second novel. Jandela's life has been so tipsy-turvy, full of massive highs and depressing lows, so we'll think you'll find this one interesting. Here is my conversation with novelist Jandela Benson. Welcome to the show, Jandela Benson. How are you today, Jandela? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, doing good. How are you? Fantastic. We are so delighted that you've been able to be a part of the show today. Really keen to get into some of the ups and downs in your life. I guess let's take it back to the very beginning, as we always do. So my first question is, where were you born and how were the first few years of your childhood? Um, yes, yeah, so I was born in Nigeria. Um, I moved to the UK when I was about eight months old. So I don't have any memories of Nigeria as a um, baby, but um, moved to the UK and I grew up in Birmingham in the Midlands. And yeah, I think my life as a child in Birmingham was, I think I had quite a good childhood, generally speaking. Um, I didn't have any kind of major traumas that I can look back on apart from I guess racism being a black child in Birmingham at the time while Birmingham is quite a diverse city I think it depends where you live as to how much diversity you get to experience so um there was, yeah, there was, that was kind of maybe the biggest test of my childhood, kind of like racism and realising that you're different because you have like kids who want to point out that you're different all the time. So I went to quite a um, white working class primary school and then I went to a um, very middle class grammar school, again, mostly white. And I think, yeah, maybe that difference kind of defined my childhood for to to a certain degree but um other than that like I have a brother I lived with my parents um we weren't kind of like wealthy but I didn't really notice that I think until I went to um secondary school and you're in school with like girls who have like never been on public transport before because their parents drive them everywhere or like they go on cruises on their like holiday and you don't even know what a cruise really is I remember one time we went to the um cinema on the weekend and one of the girls brought out a 50 pound note to pay for her cinema ticket and popcorn and I literally thought it was fake monopoly money like I did not know that a 50 pound note existed (laughs) so it's like yeah that was kind of um my childhood and adolescence until I left that school and then I went to kind of like college which was so much more diverse so many more um black and Asian students and that I think was probably the best year of my educational life yeah I mean um I mean just going back a couple of steps you you, you, I read elsewhere that certainly in one of the primary schools that you went to 
you were the only black girl in the school. And I, I had a similar experience. Well, me and my brother being the only black boys in the school. And that can have an impact on your identity growing up. So I was just wondering, you said that you didn't have much trauma growing up, but I mean, did that impact you at all? The fact that, you know, from an identity point of view, you were basically the only one in your school. Yeah, so I think I wasn't the only one. It was the only one in my class. So um, ah, I guess, it, I yeah, see. in, um, but even then there was like, like I think like one black, per- there were maybe two classes in each year and there was like one black person in each class in primary school and even secondary school. It was like, it was almost like they purposely like spread us out, like one black girl in each class in um, secondary school as well. To be honest, I think it did have an effect. It definitely did kind of um I guess, give me a bit of like angst in certain sense, like just that feeling of just like really being different and there's nothing you can do about it, but people make it into like this thing. And um, I remember kind of being a child as well. So in the neighbourhood that we grew up in, as I said, it was like very like white working class. And my mum, being from like a Nigerian background, my mum would be like making ground rice and like stew for dinner and I'll be like why can't we just have pizza and like all this kind of like no why can't we just have normal food and I think it, there was a lot of angst there which maybe solidified into a l- low self-esteem in certain ways and like not really like believing in myself or not really thinking that I was capable or not realizing how capable that I was um in a sense where I was very bright in school I was very kind of like academic in that sense but you always feel like just a little bit less than because you're kind of made to feel like that and if I'm honest um yeah maybe I'm playing it down too much like oh, there wasn't that much trauma because secondary school I actually really did not like secondary school at all um I had a really hard time there um not so much with the other girls even though going to a girls school any girl will tell you it can be a bit of a psychological <laughs> it can be like psychological warfare um girls schools but it was more like yeah just problems with teachers kind of always um I don't know I just never wanted to believe the best in you like if you're if the whole class is playing up it's like the you playing up is malicious right if everyone's kind of messing around but you are the one that's being the most disruptive and the most thing and I think that um definitely I not so much in primary school because I was still quite young but in secondary school I had a lot of anger I think towards authority (laughs) because of like how teachers there was like a double standard when it came to even one of my very close friends was um a South Asian girl and even the difference between how they would treat um South Asian girls who are messing up um compared to the white like white girls who are messing around it was like completely different so I think there was a lot of anger that I had towards authority in school because I was just like I like children have a very clear sense of right and wrong like children have a very clear sense of what's fair and what's not and I was like this is this is not fair and I did get um suspended for a short period for um something ridiculous I used to have a blog back when no one really knew what blogs were but I got into the internet at a really young age so I was like building websites and I made like a blog and I was basically bitching about my teachers on this blog but being a child I there was no such thing as kind of like hiding my identity so I was using the teacher's full names I on the like little profile page I had like my first name and my date of birth which seems absolutely wild to kind of put on the internet as a child now so um one of the teachers when she was googling her name I guess my SEO was like out of this world because my website came up and um it it was at like a family party or something and they were trying to google their name the family name her name came up they read my blog where I called her all sorts of things that were that were (laughs) and I got suspended for like two days for that and I think that again it just added to kind of like that anger that I had in secondary school just like this is not fair life's not fair and I guess yeah it probably did um undermine my sense of self um for a while at least yeah but as you say you found college to be a bit of a happier place lots more diversity and you obviously got through that and uh, ended up going to art school, which was, I think it was down in London. So how how did you find that journey and, you know, the first initial couple of years living in London? 
Um, yeah, so I, when I started going to college, I originally thought that I was going to go into broadcast media. So I was um, studying with that in mind. I was going to go into broadcast media. I was going to be a reporter on the news, like a correspondent at, in far-flung destinations, kind of reporting back. But something, um, ha- I don't even know what it was, to be honest. I can't tell you what it was, but at some point I was just like, actually, I want to be a graphic designer instead. So I had gotten through my first year of college, had absolutely the best time. It was like literally the highlight of my educational career. So much fun. And then at the end of that first year, as we had the meeting to like go into second year, so like what are the A-levels that you're going to pick, et cetera, et cetera, I told my teacher that actually I want to go I want to study graphic design and I know to study graphic design I have to go to art college so I want to go to art college bearing in mind that I was not studying any artistic degree I was doing media French English language and business studies and I said I wanted to go to art college and my teacher was like well you need to like do an art degree like you need to do an art A level to get there And she said, you know, you might need to stay on an extra year, like a third year to get a full A-level. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not prepared to stay in college for three years. So I ended up taking, um, dropping two of my um, AS levels and taking on fine art and um, fine art textiles as AS level to kind of like super power myself. In my head, I was like, if I do two art AS levels it's kind of like one (laughs) art A level so um I did that my second year at college was completely different because I was working I was working my backside off like trying to make sure I didn't have to stay in um college for a third year my art teachers were like yeah this is good but be prepared because you're probably gonna have to do a third year so I was working 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 and then when it was time for um to apply to art college I applied again my teachers were like you know you might not get in so I applied to kind of like the best art college in Birmingham and the one of the best art colleges in London and I remember my fine art textile teacher was like you need to be more realistic like you're gonna have to do a third year and I was like no no no, I think I can do it and I basically got accepted into both um, art colleges off the back of like essentially an Uh, an AS portfolio and I remember the look on my (laughs) teacher's face when she like they were shocked because I'm not gonna lie I was not the best art student either like it wasn't like I was kind of some prodigy in terms of art even one of my teachers kept saying oh like your write-ups are so good why don't you go and do English instead like go and do English like everyone was trying to push me in this other direction because my writing skills were so much more Um, I guess remarkable compared to my art skills like my art skills were fine but they were like why are you trying to like go down this extra hard path but I guess also back to that rage and the kind of like authority like being against authority I was like I'm gonna show them I'm gonna show them and I managed to get into um yeah UAL um Camberwell to do an art degree a foundation art degree and it was another challenge (laughs) it was it was hard it was really really hard looking back now I can say that moving to London like literally the week I turned 18 I packed my suitcase I was down to London I wasn't living in halls I was living kind of my uncle who lived in Peckham at the time found me like a flat to stay in I was staying by myself I wasn't living in halls I'm not really an Naturally, I'm an introvert, so I found it quite hard to like make friends and then not living in halls on top of that was like an added challenge. So that first year, I was depressed. I, I can look back and say it now, like I can see it now knowing what, um, like knowing more about like mental health and what all of that means. But I was definitely depressed and I actually failed <laughs> my first year at art college. I like completely failed. I wanted to stay on at Camberwell and do a graphic design degree and I completely flopped it. And they were like, sorry, you need like a backup plan. You can't stay here. And I was absolutely devastated. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, when they move to a different city, go through some periods of depression. So I, I don't think you are alone in that. I, I remember going up to Manchester, so I almost did kind of the, the reverse of what you did. And although I wouldn't say I was depressed, it was certainly some low moments, particularly during the winter. I did find the winter months pretty, pretty depressing. But then 
hopefully you get to meet more and more people and then that just kind of brightens up your day a little bit. And then um, in terms of your experience in London, you, you obviously moved from the University of Arts London and then you got into got into Kingston to do a BA in graphic design and photography. So you continued to kind of rally against what the lecturers were saying about following the writing route and you continued on your own path. Yeah, I remember my mum, when I found out that I failed and I was like, literally, I was ready to pack it all in, go move back to Birmingham. I was like, that's it. Like the dream's over (laughs) kind of thing. Tail between my legs, let's go. Um, I was actually preparing to go back to Bible college because before I had, and before I'd left my, um, the church that I grew up in, the youth pastor had really wanted me to go to like a Bible college and kind of go to seminary and like potentially be like a youth pastor, like grow up in that vein. And I've been like, no, I'm going to London. So when I failed, I was like, well, maybe it's just go back to Bible college and do all that. But my mum was like, no, like do something else, like work out what you, what you want to do. Like there's, there's another path, like this isn't the only uni that you can attend. So um, I did a bit of research and while I was doing my foundation degree, I actually really discovered how much I enjoyed photography. So I kind of found one of the only courses that combined graphic design and photography and that one was at Kingston I think there's like another one which was like outside London I was like I'm not going there so um I applied to Kingston with the portfolio that had basically got me fail that I had failed (laughs) to get into UAL with like with some tweaks of course but for the most part it was the same portfolio that they had rejected me at Camberwell I applied to Kingston I went for my interview had a chat with the lecturers and um I got um accepted like unconditionally I got accepted because bearing in mind I still hadn't got a degree like I'd failed my degree so I didn't actually have like a qualification when I went to go do this interview I would have to like redo some some projects to kind of get to like pass that foundation degree but they gave me like an unconditional acceptance they were like yeah we want you you're in and again I went back to my lecturers um on the foundation degree and I was like oh like yeah I got into Kingston and again they were shocked they were like like unconditionally I was like yeah unconditionally they were absolutely flawed that um I'd managed to get in so I did do so in theory I didn't have to do anything like if I didn't get the foundation it was neither it was neither here or there but because you know I'm Nigerian you have to kind of like have something to show (laughs) for your time so I did um redo a project and I and I managed to pass the foundation in the end but then yeah I went off to Kingston to study graphic design and photography and it was I think I put that down to my mum kind of being like don't like don't let this like you can't just let this keep you down like you have to um you have to keep pushing for like what you want like one knockback is not going to be it and I think that because again there's that like underlying like doubt in myself and then I'd managed to like push through at college and like ignore what the lectures have said at college but I think that knockback especially at like such a prestigious university was like me thinking like I'm not cut out for this like I'm not good at this so I didn't even think that like another university that was highly regarded for art and design would even like take a second look at me but thankfully thankfully art's subjective so you know you might not be one person's taste (laughs) but you can definitely be someone else's. Isn't that funny so literally the same portfolio that you had at University of Arts London got you into Kingston that's just that's just so funny but um obviously you got your degree at Kingston you came out and then by all accounts you were kind of living as a as a freelance photographer for a few years so how how, how did you find that period um yeah so I mean I think I, it would also I, I have to say I didn't enjoy my degree either <laughs> um, so I did do the degree at Kingston and I think it's because I just didn't enjoy design at that point, like graphic design. I was completely off it. So thankfully I had like the photography segment of the course to like get into, but I really didn't enjoy 
um, design. I wanted to drop out in my second year. I ended up failing my second year. But again, thankfully, I had some really good lecturers who were kind of, again, like, you know, like, just keep going, like, you can do this. And I and I got a 2-1 and I finished. And like, thank goodness, because I've got a little scroll that um, I can put on the wall. But after that, I was just determined that I wanted to be a freelance photographer. And everyone was saying, you can't, like, you can't do it. Like, you have to go and, I don't know, pay your dues or get a part-time job or whatever. And I did that stuff. Like, I assisted photographers. Um, I assisted um, some very successful photographers. It was a great time of learning, um, working in the studio, long days, like, learning about the business from that side. And then um, I tried, like, going freelance. And it was... For one, I was living with my grandma at the time, so I did not have to pay rent, which is kind of the thing that made it possible because I was, I was broke. I had no, <laughs> I had no money. I was doing like, I was doing freelance jobs here and there. Like I was, um, what was I doing? I did kind of, I was also doing filmmaking as well. So I made some like short films for people, a couple of music videos. I was doing like portraiture photography mainly. Um, I was doing my thing I was trying to do my thing and then also I tried to like launch other kind of like side hustles I tried a streetwear brand I was trying like all of these things out and um part of it was also just me kind of like exercising my creativity so I have this thing that um I just don't want to I don't want to end my life with there being what ifs like I don't want it to be oh what if I tried that thing and who knows it might have taken off and I might have been a millionaire I don't want to I want to try everything any idea that I have I want to give it a shot to say that I tried it if it didn't work it didn't work no problem so I literally tried there's so many things that I've just thought oh let me give it a go I've tried DJing it was fun not for me tried a streetwear brand it was really hard <laughs> I respect anyone who is starting a fashion brand because it is not for the it's not for the faint-hearted um and I was doing all this and as well as kind of freelancing as a filmmaker and a photographer working for some brands of varying sizes but you know it's up and down with freelancing um but I learned a lot about myself but I think again I, there was still this issue of um, imposter syndrome like not fully believing that I was good enough that I think actually when I look back I can see how it really held me back because I could have like given myself a bigger chat I could have pushed for more money from projects I was always underselling myself when it came to like quoting for projects I wasn't like letting myself to live in greatness I was very kind of like limited in terms of what I thought I could achieve because I think again it was like yeah a bit of low self-esteem a little bit of imposter syndrome like not quite believing that I was good enough um always feeling like I don't know maybe there's someone else better out there so um yeah it was it was tough but it was a really valuable experience that I don't regret at all because I learned so much about myself I just think that um if I'd had just had more belief in myself I think I would have been like more successful but then that wouldn't have taken me on the path that I am now so you know all things work together in the end yeah freelance career not for the faint-hearted because um you know your, your life is up and down basically sometimes you're living hand to mouth from paycheck to paycheck and I think you've been quite open on other podcasts and you've mentioned that, you know, at times you've been living on benefits, but, you know, also you didn't have any shame on doing that because, you know, you've obviously paid your dues and that's what the benefit system is there for. So I thought that was really, really honest. And, you know, you mentioned the fact that, I don't know if it was just been in the black community that you were talking about, but a lot of people don't actually mention, they're too proud to say that they're on benefits do you still sort of maintain those those thoughts about the benefit system and you know if you have to if you have to dip into it you have to dip into it right like absolutely like the way that i see it is that everyone benefits from the state system in some way you could be 
uh, owner of three businesses and you're benefiting from tax breaks or loopholes that your accountant is managing to kind of like get you through like every even <laughs> even if you want to get to even like the um some people was you could even say that the VAT system in terms of when you charge VAT as a business and like you can get cash back off like VAT that you've paid for that like there's all of these different ways that we can that different people at different levels of life benefit from the state and why is it only that if you're on a if you don't earn over a certain amount any benefit that you get from the state is all of a sudden it's like your scum of the earth like I think that we just have to be honest like especially with the current cost of living crisis like the most the biggest kind of chunk of the benefits bill is for beyond beside pensions which is like another conversation besides like kind of state pension the biggest chunk of the benefits bill is going towards um in work benefits so that's people who are working but they're not earning enough to meet their day-to-day needs so they need to be topped up with tax credits or universal credit or whatever else and I think that I don't know it's like the people at the top who benefit almost the most (laughs) who can kind of ring the most kind of like money from um from the system whether it's the fact that they hide all of their wealth in like um assets so they're not paying um income tax at the rate that normal people are paying income tax whatever it is like they they can make us on the lower end feel like we can't ask for anything don't you dare take anything from the state like we are not first of all like we don't deserve it as kind of like legal citizens of the UK and second of all like it's not going to come back to them so I was on the so the when I was freelancing I was kind of um I was on I think towards the end of that when I I kind of went on to job seekers for a little bit but it was when I was really when I became a mother that was when I was basically I was not working at all I was basically a stay-at-home mom for the most part so I so yeah that I was benefiting from the state system but that kind of launchpad that kind of time that allowed me to kind of just be a mom look after my child work out what I was going to do afterwards kind of set me up to a position now where I am paying my fair I would say more than my fair share of tax when you look at what um, the, the wealthiest of the country pay but I was pay- like now I'm like I'm a taxpayer I pay into a pension I'm a taxpayer and that was only possible my career trajectory was only possible because I had the space to work out when I was a mom okay I've got a bit of breathing space I'm not living lavish but I have enough to make sure that there's food in the fridge and my house is warm and I can just get by and you know like there's also this perception that people living on benefits like living like no one is living lavish even people who are working their their socks off like they're not living lavish like it's hard for everyone out here so um like I absolutely hate this narrative that um you know that benefits are a dirty word that um we shouldn't um we shouldn't ask for what we're entitled. We should be ashamed of taking when we need help, when we need a bit of support, we should be ashamed of it. And the reality is that the people who peddle this narrative, they would literally rather see you and your children starve than anything else. And we can see that. I'm sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit, but even when we look at the free school meals initiative in London, so first of all, during... um. During COVID, during lockdown, when a lot of kids were like obviously not in school and they didn't get the benefit of free school meals. So it's like, what's going to happen when these like, a lot of children are not having hot meals or three full meals? So then it was like, OK, let's work out a way to um, get money or vouchers so that kids can have food like during Um, when they're not in school and this then got extended to like holiday time as well oh my gosh the parents are gonna use that on alcohol it's not fair on the working parents who are working so hard to feed their kids why did these scroungers get it and then um mayor of london sadiq khan extended that to all children 
in London under a certain age get free school meals and it's still up in arms oh it's a waste of money da, 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 da. so it's like people don't care about fairness they don't actually care about the quality of people's lives there is just this kind of addiction to making people feel small making people suffer and making people feel like they can't ask for help and um yeah it's actually the thing one of the things that just grinds my gears so much because we all need help at some point we will all need help and not all of us have rich or wealthy friends who can dig into their pockets and give us interest-free loans or just give us money like some of us are going to need to ask for help from the state and if you go to the rich again I'll say the richest echelons of society they have no qualms about taking kind of like cutbacks or government contract or whatever 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 it is so like we I just feel like we should just take what we're entitled to and just yeah look after ourselves and look after our families yeah, I can I can definitely see the passion there. And you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people that get into the arts or journalism or whatever, they're doing it because they're able to use their family's platform as a platform to get into the industry. You know, they, they don't have to work necessarily. They've got a bit more time to, to find their way. Whereas people from the working classes, you know, they're, they're forced to go out and work in a bar or the stakes are much higher for the people in the working classes. So I absolutely, absolutely agree. Now, the next point in your life, I guess, in film terms would be called the inciting incident. This is where you meet uh, a guy, you get married, you, you get pregnant. But I think it was around the time you got pregnant, some stuff happens in your life. I mean, are you, are you able to explain what challenges you faced at this point? Yeah, so I actually met the person who... I would go into my, I met him when I first moved to London. We were really good friends. And then um, we got married and um, got pregnant. And he was running a business at the time. And um, some stuff happened with the business. The police got involved. He was arrested. We were both arrested and um, were on bail while this kind of trial was pending. Um, That lasted for it lasted for a long time. I think it was like three years while investigation was going on, like in and out of police stations, doing um, interviews and asking me what's going on. And at the time when he was um, running, so the business that he was running was kind of a music, uh, like a music licensing business. I mean, now it's it's even bigger now. So there's like, if you're an aspiring rapper, you want music, you don't necessarily have the connections to go to like a producer. So you will might get a, you might get a beat off YouTube or you might find um, producers around the world who sell their beats through YouTube or other platforms. So he was kind of in that zone. And some, um, some stuff happened with that, which um, wasn't, completely above the board if I'm honest like I don't even I, I don't even like to, to this day I don't really know exactly what happened but because I had helped him with the creative side of the business so I was doing like branding I'd shot like a, a TV ad for um or I directed a TV ad for Channel U if we all remember it was Channel AKA at the time so I'd been involved on like a creative aspect but because I had been involved and obviously we were married I was kind of like swept up in that and um yeah it was when I was uh, so I got pregnant while we were on bail and completely believing that you know this whole thing it's just a it's a massive misunderstanding it's gonna get sorted out it's gonna be fine got pregnant found out that I was pregnant while we were on bail which was like a happy discovery because again I, I believed it would all get sorted out but when I was about I'd say seven eight months pregnant um he got convicted and got a custodial sentence um I also caught a conviction I guess as collateral damage um from the whole situation so now I'm in this situation where I'm about to give birth my husband is in prison I have a criminal record like what the hell like this is literally not the plan um this was not the plan for my life (laughs) this is not what like this was not what I thought I'd be doing at like how old was I then? I think I was like 25. This is not what I thought, where where I thought my life would be at 25 years old. And it was, um, it was like a really, yeah, it was a really traumatic time in a sense where, because there was like news coverage about it, like I was, 
Yeah, there was there were mugshots of you in the Daily Mail, right? And the, and the, <laughs> oh in the Evening God. Standard. Yeah, I was paranoid because people were sending me pictures saying, "Oh, like you're here, you're there," like sending me like shots of like my mugshot, basically, like, "Oh, look at this." Da 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 da. I was I couldn't go outside. I was pregnant, like trying to deal with that. Um, I didn't know what to do. I wasn't working at that point anyway because I was like on maternity leave. But now it's like, what do you do after that? So I literally was in my house for I don't know how long. I was just in my house interacting only with like, I'll say my church community really rallied around me at that time. And I will always love them for it because they were so supportive. They came to my house when I wouldn't leave my house. They brought me pampers. They brought me clothes. They brought me everything that I needed for the baby. So I didn't, like, I wasn't lacking in that way. Because also at this time, um, during the investigation, my bank accounts had been frozen. Yes. I was going to ask you, like, about the impact of having, because you, you, you got the suspended sentence. I mean, what, what impact does that have in terms of you're able to do the day-to-day stuff? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know, get a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. What what, what impact did it have on your day-to-day life? Well, I wasn't thinking about a mortgage for one. I was literally just trying to think about getting through the day. So like, yeah, like frozen bank account, like you can't do much. I wasn't earning, I wasn't on benefits at that point and I couldn't apply for benefits anyway. I think while I was on bail or something like that, I couldn't even apply for, so I literally didn't have any money. Thankfully, the landlord where... Um, I was living was very patient and understanding and somehow was very patient while like there was no money coming in and while um, you know bills were stacking up so it was like after the birth of my child my first son that's when I started to try and like piece together like what's what is life gonna look like now um what am I gonna do how am I gonna like let what what do I even want to do right what do I even want to do because again I'm still in this place where I think I think that everyone who looks at me just is like a criminal so it's like I don't even want to like be anywhere or do anything like what do I even want to do right now so um so after my son was born and then there's still like the legal stuff kind of like going on, like, because you still have to like, even after a conviction, you still have to go back to court for what they call a confiscation order where they continue to, where they basically say, okay, you benefited X amount from this crime. So you need to pay back X amount. So I was still in court going through this like financial thing where they're like tallying up how much I need to pay back at a time when I don't have any money in the first place and um there was all these kind of like wild figures like flying around in terms of like how much um how much money was allegedly like fraudulently made I didn't see none of that I didn't see none of that money there was no money hidden under a bed that I could like dip into so I'm going to court and they're saying okay trying to work out how much money I need to pay back when I need to pay this money back um I'm still trying to work out how to live with like a new baby I've i I remember like literally waiting in the corridor with um, my son of the court of the courtroom and my lawyer is kind of like my solicitors in the courtroom talking to the judge and the judge is saying you have to come in like she has to come in now and the solicitors like she her baby's out like what you like what do you want to do her baby's there and the judge was like oh like fine so like one of the um court what they call them like the people who work in the court had to come and like hold my baby while I like went into court to like speak to the judge like it was a very wild traumatic like yeah sounds wild yeah I mean this sounds like it could be the storyline of a of a channel four drama do you know what I mean it's like (laughs) it's it's so I just can't even imagine what you were going through at that time and like you know after your husband um going away were, were you visiting him in the meantime with your baby and how did you find that experience yeah yeah I was like every from the week after I gave birth I went and I took the baby in to see him um and we would go every week and that was it's funny because I, I, I talk to my son now his first one of these first met like we all have like the very first thing that you remember and the one of the his very first memory is going to see his dad 
in prison. Like that's his, that's the very first thing that he can remember. He was even described, he was describing the prison room to me um, yesterday. And I was like, yeah, you're correct. That was literally the room. Um, so um, yeah, we, we were going every week. Um, I maintained like me and my husband, we maintained that relationship um, right through. He was there for like four, almost five years. He was in prison. And then um, he came out and <laughs> it all kind of went a bit pear-shaped when he came out. But as and as anyone who has kind of like the prison system, I've said this before, the prison system is trauma. It's trauma for the people who are inside. It's trauma for the families on the outside. It is complete trauma. So it's ironic that it was like after he came out when things kind of like, fell apart because you would think that it would like it would be while you were in prison that things would fell but I think there's like a different kind of survival mechanism that you try to engage especially like um as the partner that's on the outside like I would talk to other women whose um partners were in um prison and we'd like kind of like talk or whatever in the waiting room and there's like a different kind of like strong woman thing that kind of like kicks in especially when you've got kids that you kind of just barrel through and you kind of just like holding everything you're trying to hold the whole family down for like your partner for your partner's um parents for your partner's family for your own kids for yourself like um which I don't know is helpful in the end because you know um, I don't know that's like a whole other side trajectory of the conversation but um yeah that lasted for about five years um and um yeah it was it was it was crazy it was uh it was a time that I would not I would not wish that on anyone because yeah it's trauma as I said I don't know how you got through that but because that that would be that would be one of the questions like you know people would be asking how did you stay with the guy that was responsible for you getting a suspended sentence? Because, you know, it's obviously that that trust is broken, but you you obviously decided to stay with him during the prison sentence. And then, it, as you said, it was only when he came out and you tried to sort of live together again, that's when things actually start, started to break down. Yeah, I think that being a Christian, I think my faith definitely played a part in terms of like, you know, forgive and um, kind of like the the narrative is, well, you know, these are just trials that you have to get through. And that's not me saying that to say that that's a good thing or that's a bad thing. It's just a thing. I think that anyone in that situation, you have to make the decisions that you are, um, that you are capable, that you feel comfortable with. Like that's, that's, that's your only choice. I remember one of my old employee, my old employers, a photographer who I used to work with, he called me because obviously it all hit the news. He called me and he was like, you know, like what's going on? Like what's happening? And I told him and he was like, oh, are you going to, are you going to, you're not going to stay with him, are you? And I was like, yeah, I think I am. And I remember he was kind of, the response was kind of like, oh, don't be like, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't. But I feel like it's a decision that you just have to, like, you have to make the decision that you're kind of at peace with. That's all you can do. Like, you can't necessarily explain to anyone else, like, why you make. And again, the benefit is that, like, my our families were very supportive of me. So there was no one kind of like close to me that was saying, oh, leave him, leave him, leave him. And I think maybe if there was that internal pressure, maybe things would have been, di- or maybe I would have felt differently. Like, who knows? I can't say. I can only kind of look back on what happened and say that there was a the support from my community that um, enabled me to, I guess, not be bitter. Like, I couldn't because I could see the way that people were really pulling through for me. I could see the way that, yeah, people were still loving me, loving my son, helping, like keeping me together. When like the very first visit that um, that I took my son on, it was like my friend, my best friend was the one that drove me to um, to the prison because she was like, you're not going to drive yourself. Like I'm going to take you. Like there was this support there, which actually made so much um of a difference, I think. Yeah. Jandela, I mean, you've, you've done so much, man. You've gone through so much and we haven't even got to the, got to the book yet. And that's obviously the main reason why we got you on the, um, on the show. Now, um, I know, I know around about this time or just after this time, you did this TEDx talk, which I, um, 
I had a look at and it's so inspirational. How does one get to do a TEDx talk? I mean, how did somebody reach out to you? Yeah. So um, during this period, after my son was born, as I said, um, I was just trying to work out what to do next. Practically, I couldn't do photography anyway because I had a baby and childcare, etc. <laughs> but also, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I kind of saw this period as an opportunity to like just really reevaluate my life and reevaluate everything, or I felt forced into reevaluating everything. So I was um, at home and I started a blog again. <laughs> um, not the same blog that got me kicked out of school for two days but I started a blog and I was writing about my experience of motherhood basically for myself just putting it out there and um one of the organizers of Ted's um TEDx Covent Garden women read the blog post it really really resonated with her and she invited me to kind of come and to do this TED talk and um at this time like it was like obviously the whole situation with um with the court and jail conviction all that kind of stuff it was like it wasn't a secret but it wasn't like out there uh, like if you didn't really know me before you probably wouldn't know anything about it in that sense so I went to go do this TED talk and um I remember so you're given like a coach who kind of like helps you kind of craft this really compelling talk and I was trying to kind of I can't remember what the talk was I was trying to craft this talk and the coach was like it's not really coming together like it's not really coming to like she was just like there's something here that's not really coming together and I realized it was because I was trying to talk around this whole situation that had happened with my husband getting a conviction I was trying to talk around it because there was still like so much shame there um and then when I told her and I explained it to her and I'm crying like tears and she's like, like, you can't tell your story without tell without telling this bit. Like you just can't. It doesn't the story that you are trying to tell doesn't make sense if you're not being completely transparent about everything. So I had to go away and I had to think, do I really want to talk about this on a TED talk that's going to live on the Internet forever in front of I don't know, a thousand strangers. Do I really want to do that? Um, And I just realised that I had to, for myself, first and foremost, it was this massive stumbling block in my life. It was this massive, like, shame that just lived around. It was like a, it was literally like a yoke of shame that just lived around my neck and I couldn't get from underneath it. I felt like it defined so much of who I was because bearing in mind, while I did have a lot of support, there was still the negative reactions from people that I knew, people who had like been to our wedding, who had sat there eaten our rice and chicken, like danced all night. And when this news came out, I got their negative reaction. There was still people who just didn't want to be associated with me anymore because of this, because they really, really believed that I had done something wrong and they didn't believe that I was that I just didn't do anything wrong and I knew nothing about any wrongdoing. So um, I was like, do I want to put this in a TED Talk and do I want this to kind of potentially define me? Um, But in a way that was me owning the story rather than allowing the bloody Daily Mail or whoever else to like have the last word on this. Um, So yeah, it, it was probably... It was probably one of the most scariest things that I've ever done, to be honest. How many people were there? Do you, do you know how many people were in the audience? It was at the Covent Garden Odeon, I think. So one of the big screens in there. So I don't know how many, I would say maybe about a good few hundred, maybe up to, I don't know, maybe not quite a thousand, but there was a good few hundred people there. Um, so, and then obviously on the internet is, there's a potential audience of like lord knows however many million people um although I don't think that my video has been seen that many times but you know you're still putting yourself out there so I literally had to yeah I had to work out is this something that I wanted to do um is this something that um I wanted to talk about and I remember I'd spoken a few months before to um my parents about 
potentially writing about the experience. And like, obviously, I love love my mum, God rest her soul. But at the time she was like, there's no happy ending. You can't tell the story because there's no happy ending. Like the happy ending would be, oh, we went through this amazing, like nerve wracking time, but we got acquitted and it all ended. Like that would be the happy ending. There's no happy ending. Like the worst possible thing happened. Like you can't, like there's, you shouldn't really talk about it. So even as I'm going to tell this story, I'm kind of like, that's kind of like going around in my head. Like what's the, ha- like there's no happy, like there's no happy ending because the conclusion is like, oh my gosh, I'm just here. Um, but I guess maybe in hindsight, that is the happy ending that I'm still here. Right. But um, yeah, so it was really nerve wracking. It was, it was absolutely nerve wracking. As soon as I completed the talk, I literally ran off stage and I collapsed to the side and I was just crying. I was crying. It was literally the most emotionally draining thing. Like a cathartic sort of process. Yeah, it was very cathartic, but the nerves, oh my gosh, the nerves to go up and like before doing it was just absolutely insane I don't think I've ever experienced anything on that level of nerves um again so um so yeah my brother was in the audience and he was so proud of me which meant like the world obviously other friends were in the audience who like obviously knew everything before and um yeah it was it was I think that that was probably the moment where I felt like this story doesn't like literally this story doesn't own me this is just a part of my journey this is one part of my journey like this doesn't have to define me and now I can come out from underneath this and do whatever I want to do now and it was kind of like yeah because I guess there was (laughs) and on a practical level when you're working with people like you always you don't want to tell someone your whole life story, but at the same time, you don't want there to be any kind of like shock as to if they find out, oh, you tried to keep this from me. Da, da, da. It's like, no, this doesn't define me, but some people feel like it's something that they are entitled to know about you. Even if, for example, I had a suspended sentence that is actually spent. So um, it's something that I don't, by law, I don't have to kind of declare it because the conviction's done and it's spent so but still some people feel like oh this crazy like it's something that they're entitled to know so just from a practical level like the TEDx talk is there like you can see like I'm not trying to hide it I'm not trying to hide myself like this is literally who I am you either take it or you leave it because even I remembered that like like going to get an agent and all that and you're kind of wondering like oh is this thing gonna make them think oh I don't want to work with you I don't but it's like the story is there like when you're working with publishers are they gonna be like oh this thing is has tarnished this person I don't like the story's there you either take me as I am including everything that has brought me to this point or you don't and if you don't like I'd rather not know about it do you get what I mean like just do your research find from the outset and if I'm not your cup of tea that's absolutely fine yeah that's great I mean it's it, it almost allowed you to kind of reframe your whole mindset and get your life back I guess and it seemed that you know by doing the blog that led to obviously the TED talk and it led to one or two other opportunities. I mean, from looking from the outside in, it almost seems like you were able to get yourself out of your situation by writing. Would that be a fair way of looking at it? I feel like I wrote myself into being the person that I am now, like, which is so ironic when you think about how long I tried to run. I know I want to be an artist. I want to be an artist. And I'm glad I did all of that. And again, it's it's all like made me who I am. And there's no shoulda, woulda, couldas. I have no question. Could I have made it as a freelance photographer? The answer is you could have, but it, but you struggled. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I literally feel like I wrote myself into who I am now. It was all through writing. It was through writing that um, I got um, the opportunity to write a book because the first approach for me to write a book came from people reading my um, something that I wrote on Black Ballad. Black Ballad happened because I was writing for my own blog um, and also writing for my own blog got me other opportunities to write for other publications and have column, like short stints and columns here, there and in other places. So I literally feel like I wrote myself into the person that I am now and I, I'm proud of myself for that. But also I'm just very grateful because I know that 
there were so many people along the way who um, supported me at my lowest, who gave me the chance, who didn't let what they knew of me to shape who they thought I was and what I th- and what they thought it could be. Like Toby at Black Ballad, endless, give her endless thanks for giving me the opportunity to kind of like come on board and be like I work full time in an industry that I never even would have put on my vision board because Toby gave me the chance and but then I have to give props to myself because I wrote and that was what brought people in as well. So just for the listeners uh Jandela is now head of editorial at Black Ballads and I mean if you had to describe what Black Ballad is I mean what how would you describe it? Well, we are a digital media platform and membership community for Black women in the UK and beyond. So we publish writing exclusively written by Black women in the UK, but also around the globe. Our primary audience are Black women in the UK, but also around the globe. So literally for us, by us, we do events, we have a book club, we have (laughs) membership perks, we, we kind of are a lifestyle um membership i guess a lifestyle membership community which also publishes extremely good journalism and original writing and um as chandela said earlier she she's now also a published author so her debut novel hope and glory came out in 2022 to much fanfare and e- even i think even before it came out there was quite a lot of buzz about you and this book so why was there so much buzz? Is it is it just a good agent or is it because of your backstory? What was what was the what was going on there? You know, I've never actually thought. I think that part of it was I was really grateful that I had some early readers like Candice Carty Williams, um, Bolu Babalala, Yami Adegoke, who are obviously like kind of powerhouses in their own right. Dorothy Coomson, who is the like our national treasure in terms of like writing adult fiction they all read my book pretty early on and they were loving it and championing it so I think that that definitely helped and um there was also like a bit of um buzz around tv rights as well kind of like pretty early on so I think these are all the things that like fed into I guess the hype around the book but um yeah, it was, yeah, it, it was a, a labour of love, but um, a long-held dream, actually, a long-held dream that, um, yeah, I'm grateful to have accomplished. And will the book be turned into a TV series? Is that, is, are you able to, to mention, or is it still in, in discussion? It's still in discussion, still, uh... I mean fingers crossed pray to your deities I I hope I hope you will but it's still one thing that I'll say is that I thought that publishing was a long process TV is actually like the longest it is the longest game in the world so um yeah I I hope so but um we just have to we have to wait and see and how how are you going to deal with the second album syndrome you know like I mean it wouldn't be an album in this case it would be the (laughs) second book syndrome but like how how do you get how do you manage that those kind of thoughts? Because uh, I hear that the second book you're you're kind of editing it. How are you going to deal with that? Well, I Dorothy Coomson gave me the best advice, which I didn't take as seriously as I should have. Which is like, as soon as your first book is done, just start writing the next one. Like, don't even give yourself space to kind of overthink and kind of psych yourself up or psych yourself out. So, um, yeah, I this. The second book is finished now and we are waiting for it. It's going to be out this year, 2024. Um, Hopefully there'll be some news and announcements about that um, sooner rather than later. But um, yeah, it's, it's hard. But I think for me, it was like, I just wanted to, like, I love Hope and Glory. It is my first, my first child, my first book baby. But I just wanted it to be better. I wanted to challenge myself to be better, to try something more ambitious, to um, really push myself. Like finishing a novel, first of all, is a is an accomplishment. But then it's like, okay, you finished one book. So what are you going to do to make this book even one step better so it was hard from that perspective because I just really wanted to push myself to make um to just be a better writer to kind of just push myself even more yeah I'll, I'll attach the, the link to the book on on the show notes uh hope and glory 
I mean, you know, there has been a, quite a new wave of African British writers over the last, I don't know, five or ten years. Who do you think has been the real game changer? Because th- there's been far more than maybe there were sort of 15, 20 years ago. I mean, when I went to uni, there was like Ben O'Cree, there was Dewey Adebayo, but not many more back in that in that time. But as I say, last five, ten years, been so many more. So who's been the real game changer, do you think? I think there's from my perspective, which is as a millennial, kind of like who really only started paying attention to the quote unquote industry in let's say like the last 10 years or so, um, the two kind of real game changing moments was first of all, um, when Candice Kai Williams' Queenie came out, um, that was just a absolute runaway mainstream success. And I think it made publishers take a second look at particularly Black British women who are writing. That was the moment when they were like, oh, okay, you guys can write and you can like do big numbers when it comes to selling books. Okay, we're paying attention. And then the second one would be um, Bernadine Evaristo, Girl, Woman, Other. Um, Again, her winning the Booker Prize. That I feel like that again kind of made people take black women writing fiction in the UK like more seriously. Not to say that it's perfect, like there's still so much more work to be done. But um, I feel like those are two real key moments when I saw the, the industry as a whole being like, oh, OK, we're going to take this demographics writing more seriously. Yeah. And, you know, you could mention others as well. Mallory Blackman. Zadie Smith. There are so many to mention, too, too, too many to mention, but. There are so many. And even like someone like Dorothy Coombson, again, who's been writing for 20 years at this point, um, just yeah. kind of like steadily churning out book year after, like her books are absolutely mind blowing. Like every book she writes, I'm kind of like, Dorothy, how did you do this again? Like you've literally scattered my book. And like, yeah, Mallory, Mallory Blackman, probably one of the very first black authors that you would read as like a black British child right um and then Zadie Smith again but I feel like the only difference that I think there is is that these writers were treated as outliers like oh this is a this is a black woman who just happens to write really really well while I feel like in and partially it's because of the, and I'll say partially it's because of social media and the internet as well, which kind of widens that. And then all of a sudden you can have a window into a world, a quote unquote niche um, subculture that maybe you can't necessarily see. I think like, I think Candice, Carty Williams and Bernadine Everest, there were moments when all of a sudden it was kind of like, oh, wow, okay there's more almost like there's more of you (laughs) there's more of you and then we're gonna look and oh I can see so many other black women writing and didn't and all the level so not to take away from any of the other writers that you mentioned Zadie Smith Dorothy Coombson Mallory Black like some of the best writers that we have working across commercial fiction as well as literary fiction but um but I think there's definitely been a change in recent years there's been like a change of pace well, just rounding up, you know, if you look back over over your not just your career but your life, you know, you've 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 obviously had a lot of success, particularly in recent years. How much of your success do you think has been down to either luck, hard work, or talent? You know, if you had to choose one of the three, what has been the biggest contributor towards your success? I think I say this a lot. It's a good time to be someone like me as like a black British Nigerian woman (laughs) who has had like a say lower middle class working class upbringing like it's a good time to be me because there are so many like again the internet social media um there's so many things that leveled the playing field for someone like me um so I think look definitely plays a big role in which is sad to say right it is sad to say but luck definitely plays a big role um and just in terms of being born to the family that I was born in where 
even though maybe we're not the richest people in England, like relative to the rest of the world, like we are pretty bloody wealthy, right? Um, so luck definitely has a part to play. And I think that um, talent as well, like I definitely think that I'm talented. <laughs> like let me not try and do the whole British um, self-deprecating thing. I definitely think I'm talented. But I think hard work, and that's not to say that hard work in a sense where, oh, I work so much harder than other people. But I think it's the thing of like just not allowing yourself to kind of like stay down, like doing the hard work of getting back up when you've been knocked back. And as I said, like there's been times when it's been other people who've allowed me to do, who've been the support that I needed to get back up, whether it was my mom, whether it's my church community, whether it's being able to like be on benefits for a few months, like while I was, um, or longer than a few months when I was a new mom and I just had time to like work stuff out. But um, it's like not allowing yourself or not kind of just staying down when you get knocked down. And I think that is almost the hardest work of all. Like doing the creative work, like doing all that. kind. Of, yeah, it's hard work, but it's fun. Working on yourself, like dealing with your low self-esteem or low sense of self or your imposter syndrome, dealing with your paranoia or the anxiety that you've developed because of this adverse situation that's happened to you. Dealing with the trauma that... Um, that kind of lives in your brain and your body that is hard work and but that is going to be the thing that allows you to go on and make the best of use of the look that you've been given and make the best of use of the talents that you've been given um so I think hard work comes into it but not to say that oh I work so much harder than everything else but, but dealing with yourself dealing with your demons dealing with like your mental health and the adverse things that happen in life that's a lot of hard work but that is essentially the foundation for the life you want to live. Okay, good stuff. Well, we are all excited and uh, really keen to to see when your next book comes out. Hopefully it will be this year. It's definitely this year. This year. It, has, oh, to, it has to come out this year. <laughs> has to be this year. Has to be this year. <laughs> That's yeah. great news. Great news. And thank you very much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. Ooh, wow. What a journey Jendela has been on. Thank you to her for letting us into her world for an hour. I mean, from being someone who was charged for money laundering to being a published novelist, what a journey that has been and how she's managed to turn her life around purely by using her, her superpower, her ability to write. Fantastic. I've included a link to her first novel, Hope and Glory, in the show notes. I've also included her TED Talk as well that she did a few years ago. Please do go check that out. And I eagerly await her second novel sometime this year. You all heard it. She did promise. So I hope that comes out very, very soon. Hit us up on the socials. Let us know what you thought about Jandela and the podcast. We're on the usual platforms, Twitter, or X as it's now called, and Instagram at How I Crushed It, or send an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com. And catch you on the next show. <laughs>